Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So before we turn to Revelation chapter 10, we were gone last week, and sometimes it's good to remind ourselves about the book of Revelation. So let's do a little bit of review, okay? So chapter 1, let me just, you guys help me. Tell me the themes of each chapter, like the big themes. So chapter 1, we're introduced to the fact that this is a revelation that John receives. He receives the vision of Jesus. And in chapter 1, you have those seven different um, aspects of Christ's appearing to John. John falls down as though he's a dead man. Jesus puts his hand on him and says, fear not, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, and then I've got a message to give to the seven churches. Okay, chapters 2 and 3 are the seven, what, churches. So Jesus writes a letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Each church has its own different issue. We don't want to go into that right now, but if you remember from a few years ago, I mean a few years ago, yeah, a few years ago, a few months ago, when we talked about um, the seven churches in Revelation. Okay, then you get to chapters 4 and 5. So chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 4 really describes the throne room of heaven with God the Father. And if you remember, the word throne shows up 40 times in the book of Revelation. So chapter 4 is the throne room. Chapter 5 is Jesus. He's the, the lion slash lamb that was slaughtered. Um, and everybody is worshiping Jesus and the Father in the heavenly throne room. Okay, chapter 6 begins what we call the seven seal judgments. Okay, the seven seals. So you get down to seals 1 through 6, and then chapter 7 is the interlude. Chapter 7, you've got the 144,000, and you've got the great multitude, which I argued, and you can disagree with me. It's okay to disagree with Pastor Sean. It won't hurt my feelings. Um, it's okay for you to be wrong. That's all right. No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just joking. I, I viewed the 144,000 and the great multitude as the same group of people. These are, the, these, are, these are God's people that have been sealed. They've been protected. Then we get to chapter 8, and you, the seventh seal is released in chapter 8. Let me just turn the page here. And that basically launches you into the next set of judgments, which are the seven trumpets the seven trumpet judgments. And those are judgments that deal with one-third of the earth being affected. And then, so you, you get to chapter 9, and chapter 8 was dealing with all of the judgments that God pours out on the natural world. So if you remember the sea, the ocean, the, the, the fresh water. And then in, we, the last time we met, 
chapter 9, we talked about the demonic, these demonic beings that were released from the abyss that went out to torment those who were not believers emotionally and spiritually. And the one thing that we kind of were surprised with at the very end of chapter 9 was in light of all of this calamity, in light of all of this judgment, the people still did not what? They didn't repent, which is scary. They did not repent of their idolatry, of their sexual immorality, of their sorceries, their murders, their thefts, um, all of the things that they that they were engaged in. So that brings us, that's just like chapters 1 through 9 in a nutshell, brings us to chapter 10. And so let's read chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. And this is a short chapter, so we may get done a little bit early tonight, but I feel like if I do two chapters at at a night, you're going to get lost. So I want to go slow, go through chapter 10, If you have questions, we can talk about that. But let's just read Revelation chapter 10, starting in verse 1. It's a good place to start, right? Verse 1. Then I saw, so John is still speaking here. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire, He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled as he announced to his servants the prophets. Okay. Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. We are introduced to this massive angel who right foot is on the sea, left foot's on the land. He's got a rainbow-colored turban, and he's holding a little scroll. And he's about to release the seven thunders. So we've got to ask some questions because this is the first time this has shown up in the book of Revelation. So what are these questions? Well, let's answer one, two, three, four questions. Okay, here's question number one. Who is this angel? Now, it seems almost like some of the descriptions that we see here were like Jesus back in chapter one with his face being like the sun. But... Obviously, this can't be Jesus because it says it's a mighty angel, okay? This is a massive, powerful, brilliant angel that may be the same angel back in chapter 1, verse 1, who told John to write 
the book of Revelation. We really don't know. But how is he described? He's, he's wrapped in a cloud there, verse 1. He's got a rainbow over his head. His face is like the sun, and his legs are like pillars of fire. Now, let me just ask you a question. Remember the throne room back in chapter 4? What was coming out of the throne room? Rainbows, God's power, God's authority. Do you remember what happened to Moses when he came down off the mountain? His face was shining because he was in the presence of the Lord. They had to put a veil over his face. It could be the same idea here that because this angel has just left the throne room of God and he's coming out to execute justice, he still has, if you will, the remnants of the throne room still on him. That's why he's shining. Now, many scholars, we can't be definitive on this, but a lot of scholars identify this angel as Gabriel, which literally the word Gabriel in Hebrew means mighty one of God. Now, notice I saw another mighty angel. So the word mighty in Hebrew is Gabriel. Now, let's just talk real quick. There are only two angels that are named in the Bible. Who are they? Michael and Gabriel. Okay. Now, Gabriel, what, do we, what else do we know about Gabriel, the archangel? What was the main thing he did? He announced the... The birth of Christ to, to Mary. So Gabriel was associated with announcing the birth of Christ. Here it could be that he's announcing the return of Christ. He's given that unique position to announce his birth and his, his coming. Um, we can't be definitive that it's Gabriel, but it's a mighty angel. It's not just your run-of-the-mill angel. It's a mighty angel. And the word Gabriel means mighty one. Okay. So it could be Gabriel. We don't know. It doesn't say. That's just what most scholars take a guess at. But verse 2, he had a little scroll open in his hand. Okay, so what is this little scroll? Remember where else we've seen a scroll? Back in chapter 5, who was the only one that was able to come take the scroll out of the Father's hand and execute judgment? It was Jesus because he had been slaughtered. So is this the same scroll? Now, why is it little? He's huge. Yeah, so in comparison to the angel, the scroll's little. And as we find out later on, it's little enough for John to eat it. Okay? So what is the scroll? I think there's really only one scroll in, in the book of Revelation. It's symbolic. I think it's none other than the scroll of destiny or the scroll of judgment that has been given to Jesus as the Lamb back in chapter 5, where he went and took it out of the Father's hand because he's the only one worthy. And basically, it's the scroll that is God's sovereign plan to bring forth judgment on the earth and bring history to a close. It's the unfolding of God's, God's end of, of history. Okay, so we got a mighty angel, probably Gabriel. We're not quite sure, but we can maybe guess. He's got a little scroll in his hand, so that signifies he's about ready to unleash judgment. But what's he doing? He's so big that he is standing on the land and he's standing on the sea. Now, straddling the land and the sea. What's the big deal about that? Well, you don't know yet unless you continue reading in the book of Revelation. 
It's theological. Because when we get to chapter 13, you will find out that the beast or the Antichrist rises out of the sea and the second beast or false prophet rises out of the earth. So the two main players that are sent by Satan rise out of the sea, rise out of the land. Why is the angel standing on the sea, standing on the land? I think what John is doing here theologically is he's establishing right here the fact that God is sovereign over the forces evil. And even though he's allowing them to come forth and do their evil works, this evil is still under his sovereign control. And the, the, the false prophet, the beast, they cannot spiritually destroy the church. Even though they emerge and are powerful, the mighty angel is still more powerful. So it's almost like this. You got the beast rising out of the sea. You got the false prophet rising out of the land. The angel's on both of them, and he's kind of got his head stuck on both of them. Like they can move around and, and get stuff done that God wants them to do, but ultimately they can't go beyond what God has ordained them to do because the mighty angel is, is doing that. Okay? Now, we have, it almost sounds like it's another set of judgments. So what are the judgments we've seen so far? We've seen seven seals. And we've seen seven trumpets, but what do we have here? Seven thunders. Now, is this another set of seven judgments? Because in just a few moments, if you, if you continue reading through the book of Revelation, you get to the seven bowls, which is the final. So you've got three sets of seven judgments in Revelation. You've got the seals, the trumpets, the bowls. Are the seven thunders a fourth or like a third? And then the bowls being the fourth. What are the seven thunders? Okay, is it another set of judgments? Well, it's very interesting because what do we find out? John is about to write down, but the angel stops and says, seal it. What does it say right there? Verse 4, When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Okay. It's about to happen, but it doesn't happen. Okay, so let's, let's look at the pattern so far of these seven judgments. Okay? These seven sets of seven. What's been the pattern so far? Okay. In the seven seals... In chapter 6, how much of the earth or how much was affected? And there was time to repent, right? How much? It was a fourth, remember? If you go back and read chapter 6, a fourth of the earth. Okay. Seven trumpets. You remember back in chapter 8, what was the number? A third. Okay, if you're doing your math, what would you think would be next? A half. Okay. Do you see anything here about a half? Okay. When you go to the seven bowls, you get 100%. So if you're just doing math, you're following the math in the book of Revelation, that's a fun thing to do. One-fourth, one-third, 100%, I guess. I don't even know what that would be, four-fourths. Okay. One-fourth, one-third. You'd think somewhere in here you'd have a half if the pattern's keeping the way it should be going. So it would seem that in between the seven trumpets, which are one-third, 
And in between the seven bowls that we'll get to later on, which is 100%, we would have this one half. But there is no one half. It goes straight from one third to 100% because of something very important we saw at the end of chapter 9. What did we see at the end of chapter 9? They did not repent. One-fourth, there's time to repent. One-third, there's time to repent. Straight from one-third to 100%. Why? They are not repenting. Which leads us to ask the next question. I've got to turn my sheet to find out what that is. Why would there be no delay in judgment? Look at what he says here. Verse 5. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth, what's in it, the sea, what's in it, that there would be no more delay. Delay of what? No more delay of judgment. And so why is there no more delay in judgment? The answer comes back to what we just saw back in chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. They did not repent. So think about it this way. God has given enough time to repent with the first two of the seven judgments. Sealed judgments is just a fourth, which means what? How many are left to repent? Three-fourths. In the seven trumpets, it's one-third. How many is left to repent? Two-thirds. There's no more judgment. Or there's no more delay. When it gets to 100%, do, do, you have, do you have anybody that's going to be able to? No, because they didn't repent. Okay? So God has given enough time to repent with the first two of the seven judgments, but now there's no more opportunity. Final judgment has come, and there will not be a one-half of the earth affected with another opportunity to repent. What's the cry of the martyrs back in chapter 6, 9 through 12? Go back to chapter 6 for a minute. What was the cry of the martyrs? Remember, all right, so what did, the, what did the angel say? There's no more delay. God has come to the point where he is, his patience is up. There's no more time to repent. There's no more delay. Judgment is here. What did the martyrs ask back in chapter 6, verses 9 through 12? How long? When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. How long, God, until you bring final judgment? What are, they, what are, the, what are the martyrs told? Wait just a little bit longer until your full number comes in. Now here in chapter 10, what's the angel telling to John? It's, it's time. There's no more delay. So here's the point. From this point forward in the book of Revelation, God will not intervene to give people a chance to repent. Yet there's still going to be more martyrdom to come. 
Which brings up a question. It's not in the book of Revelation, but we're going to talk about it tonight because it's tied to the end times. God will remove His hand of restraint. God will... It's time. Which will usher in the coming of the man of lawlessness or the man of sin and what is called the great apostasy. So who is the man of lawlessness? I'm glad you asked. Let's turn to 2 Thessalonians for a minute. Okay, so we're going to spend some time in 2 Thessalonians. And the reason I'm taking you to 2 Thessalonians is because it ties in. The book of Revelation does not use the term man of lawlessness. That's a term Paul uses. But we're talking about the same person, the Antichrist. Okay? And so chapter 10, God is saying, listen, time is up. Final judgment's coming. You're not repenting. There's no more chance. My hand of restraint's off. It's, it's, it's game time. It's, it's judgment time. It's, it's now. Now, we don't know exactly when that time is, but according to, to, to there's going to come a time where it's gonna be, there's not going to be more chance. So turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and let's read verses 1 through 12. And I want to ask a couple of questions about this passage of Scripture. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Is everybody there? Okay. What? Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Okay, so Paul's saying, listen, don't freak out to think that you missed the second coming. It hasn't happened yet. Obviously, in the church in Thessalonica, they must have thought that they missed it. So Paul has to write back and say, you haven't missed it. There's some things that have to happen before the the second coming happens. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. What's that day? Go back to chapter, go back to verse 1. Now concerning, what's Paul talking about? The coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to Him. What is that? That's the coming of the Lord, the second coming, that day. So verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of the second coming of Christ, will not come unless what comes first? The rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness. Some of your translations may say man of sin is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that I was still with you? I told you these things. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will not do so until he's out of the way. And then... The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness." Okay, let me give you the overall teaching of this passage of Scripture, then I'll unpack it. Okay, so let me just give you the three big teachings, and then we'll unpack it. Teaching number one, 
The identity of the man of lawlessness is a future antichrist. A literal, what I believe is a literal person, a man. Okay? Number two. The identity of the restrainer is possibly the angel here in Revelation, the providence of God to the preaching of the gospel. So something right now is preventing or restraining the, the man of lawlessness from showing up. I mean, God is sovereignly restraining him from showing up. Now, he may be on the scene right now. We don't know. He's not been revealed. But this passage says there's something restraining or preventing him from showing up, and that's, that's God, or it could be the, the strong angel here. Anyway, God's preventing him from being revealed until the proper time. And Paul's reference to the temple of God, I believe, is the church, personally, not necessarily a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. So Paul here says two things have to happen before Jesus comes back. There must be a, a rebellion or, as Revelation would call it, what? They did not repent. And there must be the revelation of the man of lawlessness. So two things have got to happen before Jesus comes back, according to Paul. You've got to have a where's my Okay, before Jesus come back, you've got to have what's called an apostasy. What's apostasy? Is that oh somebody's phone? Okay. What is an apostasy? Yeah, it's it's actually a falling away. So let me ask you a question here real quick. I will get to this in just a moment. This is a trick question, but it's an important question. Who commits apostasy? Unbelievers. Yes. Apostasy is committed by... What's the falling away? You've got you to be in something before you... If you're falling away from something, what does it mean? You had something in the first place. Okay, so listen to me very carefully. Apostasy is not losing your salvation. Apostasy is you were never saved in the first place, and when this time comes, you're going to believe the lie, and you're going to fall away because you never had it in the first place. So there's going to be a great falling away, a great rebellion among, here's the kicker, guys, professing, Christians, this is very, very important. The falling away is not from pagans that don't believe in Jesus. The falling away is from those who profess faith in Christ, and I've said this numerous times, but do not possess faith in Christ. You see the difference? There are many professing Christians who do not possess saving faith. There are many people in the world right now that if you were to ask them, are you a Christian, they would nod their head and say yes, but they're not truly regenerated, saved, born again. So during this time of this great apostasy, you're going to have a lot of people who at one time said, I believe in Jesus, I believe the Bible, who are going to fall away from that and are going to embrace lies. Now, do you see apostasy happening today? Yes, it happens all the time. 
at a time in the future, there's going to be a great apostasy. As Paul calls it here, go back to what he says there. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the, he calls it the rebellion, the great apostasy, the great falling away. So this is a falling away of professing believers who were not saved in the first place. And the rest of the Bible teaches this. So Matthew 24, verse 10, Jesus tells us this is going to happen. Matthew 24, verses 10 through 12. And then many will fall away and betray one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Does Jesus say a few will fall away? Many. Many will fall away. Many false teachers will arrive. Okay, 1 John. The same writer who wrote the book of Revelation also wrote 1 John, John the Apostle. 1 John 2, 18-19. Children, it is the last hour. So when, when did the end times begin? About 80, 95 when he wrote, you know. When do we think the end, when do we think, he says, he's writing over 2,000 years ago. What does he say? It is the last hour. We are in the last hour. We're just closer to it than we were yesterday. Okay. You have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now, right now, written 2,000 years ago, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us because they were not of us, for if they had been with us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they're not all of us. What's John saying? Right now in the world, there are many... What's an Antichrist? Lowercase antichrist. What's the word anti mean? A what? Okay, that's the main word you guys would think about. Do you know what anti can also mean in the Greek? In the place of. It gives a little bit of different um, meaning to it. I think it can mean both. Someone who's against Christ, but someone who sets himself up in the place of Christ. I think the final Antichrist, the, the man of lawlessness, is actually going to not only be against Christ, but he's going to pretty much say, I'm in the place of Christ. Okay? So we've got to make an assumption here that... The man of lawlessness, this future Antichrist, will orchestrate this falling away. Now, how is he going to do that? Look at verses 9 through 12. Through these powers of deception. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. So there's Satanic-influenced activity with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. So you've got to ask yourself a question. How is there going to be a mass apostasy in the last days unless something demonic were not happening to delude them or to influence them? And I think it's going to be demonic in the sense that it's going to be miraculously demonic. That sounds weird. But what does he say here? 
Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. What are signs and wonders? We haven't gotten there yet on Sunday mornings in the book of Exodus, but the magicians do signs and wonders and compete with what Moses can do. Can Satan counterfeit miracles? Yes. How are a large number of people going to be deceived? We aren't given the specifics. It's just we know that it's going to be satanically inspired and there are going to be signs and wonders that this man is going to do that are going to deceive many. That's all we know. We don't know the nature of what this is going to look like, just that it's going to happen. So Jesus said, or Paul says, until Jesus comes back, the great apostasy, the falling away, the rebellion, the lack of repentance, those who profess faith in Christ but don't possess faith in Christ, this mass falling away is going to happen through the orchestrated maneuvering of the man of lawlessness who is satanically doing this type of stuff. Second question, okay, who is this man of lawlessness? And what does he do? This is where I think he's, this is where I think, this is why I think Antichrist is in the place of Christ. Because what does he do there? He sets himself up in the what? Now, when you, when you hear the word temple of God, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Do you think of a physical structure? Or do you think of a people? How does the New Testament describe? Old Testament temple was what? A structure. When was the, the temple was destroyed and when? AD 70. Okay. How does the New Testament describe the temple of God? As a structure? Okay, as the church. So Paul, who is writing 2 Thessalonians, how does Paul use the word temple? When Paul speaks of the temple, he's using it as a metaphor for the church, which is the spiritual temple of God. So 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17, Do you not know that y'all, I'm giving you the Greek there, that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? It's a, it's a second person plural, you guys. Or as Don's family was here this past week and they're all from New York, you guys. So you guys. If anyone destroys God's temple... God would destroy him for God's temple is holy and y'all are that temple. Okay. You, the, we, the body of Christ, are the temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Your body is a temple. The church is a temple. But the, the main teaching that Paul gives on this is in Ephesians chapter 2, 19-22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the prophets, of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, so according to Paul here, the temple is being built with Jesus as the cornerstone every time a person becomes a Christian and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean that the man of lawlessness sets himself up in the temple? Who is the cornerstone? 
Who is the leader of the church? Jesus. Antichrist means either against Jesus or in the place of Jesus. What's that man of lawlessness going, trying to do here? The overall idea here, and this is where it gets really scary, guys. The overall idea here is that the literal future man of lawlessness will deceive people within the church. Those deceived have professed faith in Christ, but are not true believers who possess saving faith. They were not truly saved, so their falling away was evidence of a false conversion. Now, if you're truly saved, will you fall for it? Why? Okay. Here's my greatest confidence. John 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So it's very simple. If you're a sheep, if you're a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, you will only hear Him and follow Him. And the Holy Spirit will give you the strength to do that. If you're not a sheep, here's the problem. There's a lot of people who think they're sheep, but they're really goats. So when Jesus calls a sheep, they're not going to follow Him because they're not a sheep, they're a goat, but they think they're a sheep. Okay? So it's very, very important. That's not an excuse to not learn theology, not learn doctrine, because in that day God's just going to you know, work it all out. It's important that you are discerning. Because let me just ask you a question. How many people have you known in your life right now who have been deceived by false teaching and have wandered off into weird stuff? that at one time were professing Christians. It happens right now. So, the question we've got to ask is, why is this apostasy not happening on a grand scale right now? Why hasn't the man of lawlessness not yet shown up on the scene of human history? He may be on the scene of human history, he just hasn't been revealed to us yet. Well, Paul says in verses 6 and 7, there's a restraining power. Something is restraining him. What does restraining mean? Stopping him, holding him back, preventing him from doing his work. Okay. So the question we've got to ask is, there's a lot of debate. You look at all the different commentaries and the different views. Um, what or who is preventing or restraining the man of lawlessness to appear on the scene of human history? I'll give you some of the views. I don't think it really matters. I think they're all pretty much the same. Some would say, right now, the preaching of the gospel is keeping him at bay because the gospel is going out in power. Okay. Some would say, it's this angel in Revelation that's stopping him. Okay. Some say, it's the Holy Spirit. Okay. Here's my answer. I don't know, but there's one thing I know. God is sovereignly not letting it happen yet. So even if he doesn't show, whoever's restraining him, it's because God is sovereignly doing it, regardless of who it is. When God wants that man to be revealed, God will no longer restrain that and he will be revealed at God's appointed time. So at some point in the future, this restraint will be removed 
in verse 8 says, the, the lawless one will be revealed. He'll be revealed. Which means what? You'll know who he is. It's not going to be a surprise. So let me just give you a summary over this passage of Scripture. The man of lawlessness presides over an end times apostasy slash rebellion in the visible church where false converts fall away and are deceived. End times major apostasy. This future Antichrist is the final culmination of a long stream of Antichrist. Because remember, John says in 1 John, many Antichrists have come. Throughout history, have there not been individuals who've opposed Christ? Going all the way back to the Roman emperors, all through history. They've either been against Christ or in the place of Christ, but not that future final one. And they've deceived people. This final man is being currently restrained by God's sovereignty until God ordains the restraint to be lifted. And then this is what we know. When the man of lawlessness is finally revealed, the second coming of Christ will not be far behind. Because what does Paul say has to happen first? The apostasy has to happen first, and the man of lawlessness has to be revealed. Any questions on that before we jump back to Revelation? The thing for me, guys and gals, that gets me a little concerned as pastor is how many people right now think they're saved but are not. That's one thing that just concerns me. And number two, how many people aren't discerning and are willing just to listen to anything and buy anything just because it's on the Internet or on Facebook or whatever? Yeah, Dennis. The delusion? The delusion. Is that the, a different time frame than like when they don't repent? I don't know if they're connected, but I think there's a similarity. And I didn't want to go down that path, but just just read it. <laughs> go back and read Second Thessalonians for a minute, and, and I'll just let you deal with the hard truth there. Look at verse 11. What does verse 11 say? God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. That's what, I, that's what brought it to mind. That's why I thought that. Who's the cause of the deception? God sends them a delusion. Okay. Now, you can debate whether they got to such a point where they were beyond the point of repenting. Here's the point. Does God have to actively work sin in a sinner's heart? No. So let's talk, let, let me talk about this real quick. We'll go in the deep end of the water for like five minutes and then I'll, we'll come back out. Okay, so get ready to take your breath. Okay. What's the big difference between a lost person and a saved person? 
a lost person's been saved, or a saved person's been lost. Okay, what was the condition of a saved person before they were saved? Okay, so every single person sinned, right? And was sinful, and was dead, and was enslaved. Okay, words the Bible uses were anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Um, Romans, you know, 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Does God in lost people have to actively work sin in lives of lost people? Why do people sin? They sin because of their nature. They're born in Adam. We all sin because Adam and Eve sinned. So God doesn't have to do anything actively in a sinner to make them sin. Question though, does God have to actively do something in the life of a sinner to make them saved? Yes. What does God have to actively do? He's got to overcome the deadness. He's got to overcome the enslavement. He's got to make them alive. The Bible talks about being born again, regenerated. So God actively works to bring sinners to salvation, but he doesn't have to actively work in lost people to make them lost. So what in the world does it mean that God sent them a strong delusion? Is God actively deluding them? Go ahead, Cindy. I was going to say, I thought of Romans 1, therefore God gave them over to the lust of mm-hmm. the God gives them over. So, here's what happens. God doesn't have to actively work sin in a person's life. But God can say this, if you want to continue in sin, go for it. And I'm not going to actively intervene to do anything to get you out of it. And you follow the course of that. If you are deluded and you get hardened, what are you going to eventually not do? You're not going to repent. So Dennis, to answer your question, there is a relation there to those two passages. God doesn't have to work sin in a sinner, but if you want to continue to sin, and you want to continue to sin, and God says, okay, do that, and as you do that, you're going to get more hardened, and you're going to get more deluded, and you're going to get to the point where you're not going to repent, unless God does something to actively... Now, up to this point, guys, is there hope for lost people for God to actively work in their lives? Yes, none of us would be saved unless God did that. In Revelation at that point in time, when the angel says, do not delay, is there time for God to do that? We have to assume it's, at that point it's too late. Yeah, 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting any, any, any of you to perish. Okay, any questions on that before we jump back to Revelation 10? All right, now we get to some funky stuff. You guys ready for John eating the Bible, spitting it out? Okay, here we go. (laughs) All right, Revelation chapter 10, verses 8 through 11, the second half of chapter 10. Remember, it's a scroll. All right, back to Revelation chapter 10, verse 8. Everybody back there now? Okay. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. 
It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy against many peoples and nations and languages and kings. All right. Where else in the Bible have we seen somebody eat a scroll? Jeremiah and Ezekiel. For the sake of time, we won't go back there, but if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 8, to chapter 3, verse 11, you will see that this very similar thing happened to the prophet Ezekiel where he was told to eat the scroll of God's Word. So this is nothing new if you know your Old Testament. Now for us, it's a little weird. What would you do if an angel came up to you and said, here's the Bible, eat it. Okay, I'm going to eat it. And it tastes really, really sweet. It's like, it's like you know, you put, what's your favorite, like, okay, let's just do a little poll here. What's everybody's favorite candy? Let's just, all right, so what kind of chocolate? Who's, who, like, who's an M&M person? Like, they love m and Okay, M&Ms. Okay, who's a Reese's peanut butter cup? Okay, so I mean, uh, what are some other ones? What are, like, okay, what about, like, sour candies, like uh, sweet tarts or um, everybody's, is everybody more of a chocolate person? Okay, so Jolly let's, Rancher. Jolly Rancher. Okay, Jolly Rancher. Let's list out something else that you guys like. Bit of honey. Bit, bit of honey. Okay. Bit of honey. Okay. So it's like you take, you take that perfect Reese's peanut butter cup, you put it in your mouth, and you're like, oh, you got your chocolate in my peanut butter. You know those old commercials, and you're like, this tastes really, really good. And all of a sudden, it doesn't taste like Reese's peanut butter cups. It tastes like something your dog dropped, and you're like, whoa, this is not good. And you've already swallowed it, and it makes you, you want to retch. That's what's going on here. So what's the imagery here? Because it says, it tasted sweet as honey, but then it got bitter. Okay? So Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Now, I want to talk to you about just some principles here related to God's word and how what you... Okay, so I have a term that I use and I call it scripture saturation. What comes to your mind when I use the word scripture saturation? What is saturation? What does the word saturate mean? To take it in, to ingest it, to let it soak in you. Okay, Charles Spurgeon had a really weird saying one time. He goes, when I get ready to preach and I really want to learn about the Bible, I go sit and take a bath in the Bible and I just let it soak in me. And I like to, to let the Bible soak. So my question is, when's the last time you took a bath with the Bible? Okay, that's not what I'm asking you. But the question is, if you're not passionately taking in the Bible yourself, how can you share it with others? Okay? So there are two aspects to this eating of the scroll that we need to understand because there's two things going on here, right? It's as sweet as honey, but it's bitter. 
Now, we can understand why the Bible is sweet as honey, but why would it be bitter? What's going on here? The sweet, the bitter. Okay, so here's the first thing that happens when he eats the word. It first tastes like honey, as it should, because it's God's word. Often the psalmist would talk about God's law or God's word as like sweet as honey or like the honeycomb. So, for example, in Psalm 19, 7 through 10, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired they are than gold, even much fine gold. And what does he say here? Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Okay? So when David writes this, he's talking about the Bible and how when we read the Bible, when we study the Bible, when we memorize the Bible, when we meditate on the Bible, it should be to us like better than getting better than winning the lottery and better than the greatest dessert that you ever had, like the, the drippings of a honeycomb. He says it revives the soul or converts the soul. What this means is that God's Word restores from disorder or de decay. It makes wise the simple. Now, this is not talking about intelligence. It's talking about moral judgments. When, when the Bible talks about the wise and the simple, it's more about remaining morally pure as opposed to intelligence. For example, what does the Bible do to us? Titus 2, 11 and 12, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us or teaching us or instructing us to renounce or say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. That's what the Bible does. It prevents us from um, making bad decisions. Thirdly, it, it brings obedience to the Bible rejoices the heart. It's not a drudgery to obey God's word. It's a joy. It's not a duty, but a delight. John mentions this in 1 John 5, 2-4. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we obey His commandments. For this is a love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is a victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now what does John mean there when he says... Obeying your word is not burdensome. What's burdensome mean? For you as a Christian, when it comes to obeying the Bible, should it be a joy or should it be a drudgery? Man, I really hate the Bible and I have to obey it. It really stinks to be a Christian because God gave us this word and I really, you know, I know it's his word and I really don't want to obey it, but I got to. Is that the attitude we should have towards the Bible? Or more... Man, this is God's word, and this is telling me how I should live, and I want to. It's a joy to follow Him and take in His word. Um, it enlightens our eyes, opens our eyes to the truth, exposes us to God's truth. And then in verse 10, we get this big crescendo. It's, it's longing for, desiring, obeying God's word is similar to the joy of getting gold or eating honey. Now, now it's interesting in that passage of scripture where it says it's more to be desired than the honey when david uses the word desired there 
It's more to be desired. It's the same word desired that was used of the fruit in the Garden of Eden. Interesting. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. It's interesting. What was more desirable to Eve in that moment? The fruit or God's Word? Was the... Was God's word dripping honeycomb to her to be desired or was eating of the forbidden fruit? So which one was the desire of her heart? So the question is, the big question for you, how much do we truly desire God's word? I'm going to take us on a little bit of a journey. So turn to Psalm 119. And if you have a physical Bible with you, I want you to possibly underline these because Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. And it's all about God's Word. And so I just want to draw your attention to how the psalmist feels about God's Word. And as we look at how the psalmist feels about God's Word, would it be our attitude as well? So, Psalm 119, I've, I put all these up there. Psalm 119, 16. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. What does it mean to delight in something? To take joy in it. I delight. And anytime you see the word statutes or rules or precepts or law or commandments, just think it's God's word. Okay? I delight in your statutes. Okay, look at verse 24. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 35. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts, and your righteousness gives me life. I long for your word. Verse 47. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. If your law had not been my delight. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I love your law. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Sound familiar there? How sweet is your word, how sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Okay, see the words he's talking about, about God's word? They're sweet, they're joyous, I long for them, I delight in your word. It's like sweeter than honey, I, I long for it. Okay, verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. When was the last time you panted for God's word? <laughs> I need God's word. I mean, just think of the imagery there. That's kind of a weird image, but he's like, I need your word so much. It's like, I'm so thirsty for it. Um, verse 162. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil, the treasure. And then 174. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. I mean, 
we could go on and on, but what's, what's the attitude he has towards God's word? I love it. I long for it. I need it. I desire it. I'm desperate for it. It's sweeter than honey. And my question is, is that our attitude towards God's word? What was John, when John took in the scroll, when God took in John, when John took in God's word, what did he say happened to him? It was like honey. Okay. So principle number one, God's word is to be desired like gold or honey or riches. We are to desire, saturate ourselves, long for, enjoy, delight in God's word. But how are we to deal with this issue of it turning bitter? It becomes bitter. What does it do? Look at verse 9. So I went to the angel and he told me to give, him, give me the little scroll and he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. All right. What John is about to write down... And what he's about to do, he's wrestling with. What's he about to do? Look at verse 11. I was told, you must prophesy. And literally in the, in the, in the Greek text there, the ESV says about, but really, literally in the text it's against. You must again prophesy against many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Here's the application. John knows God's word is sweet to the Christian. But he's about to go share that word with a lost and dying world that doesn't want to accept it. And he knows what he's going to face. It's going to make him sick. Yes? Sure. Yeah, that could be one way. I'm just looking at the context of that last verse where it says, you must, pro I mean, you must prophesy against many people's nations, languages, and kings. It just kind of comes out of the blue. Like you're eating the word, and then once you eat it, what do you have to do? You have to go, what does prophesy mean? To preach, to speak, okay? So here's the application for us. We should be bold to declare the gospel to an unbelieving world and love God's word, but at the same time realize that it will be offensive and that many will reject it and spend eternity in hell. As I was thinking about this, I, I, I was drawn to 2 Corinthians 2, 14-17. I think Paul captures this attitude that John experienced, the sweetness and the bitterness of God's Word and how it lands on people. So 2 Corinthians 2, 14-17, Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fra fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. So when we go out and we share the gospel, we're spreading the fragrance of Jesus everywhere. Okay, 
Look at verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. And among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, and to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who's sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. So what is, what is Paul saying here? Let me give you some, some observations here as far as what Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture that I think relates to what John is about to go do by speaking this word. Okay? When we preach the gospel or share the gospel, when I say preach, I don't necessarily mean you stand up on a stage and do what I do every Sunday morning. Anytime you verbally share the gospel, to God's elect who are not yet Christian, they receive it with joy and they get saved. It's called the aroma of Christ. So when you go share the gospel with somebody who, who is going to get saved, maybe not the first time you share it, but if they're, they're going to get saved, how are they going to receive God's word? It smells good. It's the aroma of Christ. Okay? You don't know who those people are yet until you go share it. You're, you're spreading the fragrance of Christ everywhere. Some people are going to receive that fragrance. It's, oh, this smells good. I want more of Jesus. Tell me more. Okay? But when we preach the gospel to the lost who won't become Christians, they're offended and repulsed by it. It's the fragrance of death. Now, what's the fragrance of death? Ever been around a putrid, dead body, dead animal? Some people, when you share the gospel to them, it's going to come at them like the worst thing I've ever smelled. And what are they going to do? To those that receive it as the fragrance of Christ, they're going to want to come and embrace it. I want to hear more of Jesus. I want to trust Jesus. This is, a, this is a wonderful fragrance. I believe it. I'm dead in my sin and I need salvation. Others are going to receive it like a dead body and they're going to be like, this is the most offensive, stinky thing I've ever heard. Get as far away from me as you can. And what does Paul say? Who's sufficient? Who's sufficient for these things? In other words, this makes us at times feel weak. And inadequate in sharing the gospel. Why do you not share the gospel? Because you're afraid of the second one, right? What are you afraid of when you share the gospel? Somebody's going to not accept you. They're going to reject you. They're going to be hostile to you. They're not going to like you. You may lose a friend. You may lose a family member. You're worried that it's going to be a fragrance of death. But what does Paul say? We spread it out to everybody. Some people are going to receive it. Some aren't. And those that aren't, it's going to be like a fragrance of death. But then he says, we're not like those who peddle God's Word. We should never water down the truth in order to pacify the hostile culture. We should never peddle God's Word. Now, what's the temptation to want to do to the gospel? What do you want the gospel to do? Smell good, right? If you give them the true gospel, is it always going to smell good to people? What's our temptation? I'm not going to give you the full gospel. I'm going to water it down so that it smells good. If you water down the gospel so it smells good, what does it cease to be? The gospel. 
So you're actually, you're actually counteracting what you're really trying to do by watering it down. So here's the issue with the Word of God. You need to understand this. The Word of God cuts both ways. To the saved, the Word of God is glorious, beautiful, and a treasure. All those things we talked about in Psalm 119. To those of us who are being saved, the gospel, God's Word, is truth, it's, it's joy, it's our life. To the lost, the Word of God is foolish, offensive, and brings judgment. What does the writer of Hebrews say about the Word of God, and why do some people not like it? Hebrews 4, 12-13. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. What does God's Word do when it's truly preached? It brings conviction. It goes deep into that heart. And there's some people that are laid bare before God and they don't want to be there, and so they're repulsed by it. Now, it should make you deeply sad that God will judge the world. What does John know he has to What does John see and what does John know is going to, he's going to have to write of what's going to happen? It's somewhat a mixture of joy and pain. John says, I'm taking in this word and it's joyful because it's, it's meaningful to me, but I also know this same word is a word of salvation to me, but it's the same word of judgment to those that are lost. It cuts both ways. That's why it's sweet and it's bitter. And I kind of hinted at this. In verse 11, the ESV doesn't quite get at the literal translation, but it technically should say that John must prophesy against, against, many peoples, nations, and kings. Now, this sets us up for chapter 11, which we won't get to tonight, where the church is persecuted and attacked by Satan for testifying God's Word. So Romans 8, 31-39. What happens when we go out and share the gospel? What happens to us who love God's Word? Romans 8, 31-39 is a very popular passage of Scripture. What then shall we say to these things? If, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be The song we sing. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Whoops, let me go back up there. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or danger or nakedness or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors whoa, whoa, through him who loved us. For I am neither sure that I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, here's the lingering question when it comes to testifying about God's word. John has to write down a message of judgment against the world. 
you and I aren't going to write scripture and give these visions and write judgment against God's word, but world, but are we going to go out and share the gospel? Yes. So here's the lingering question. Does testifying about Jesus in the gospel bring personal loss, opposition, and persecution from the world? All of you should be saying yes. Second question. Have we seen any reference to the church being raptured out of the world or immune from attack in Revelation so far? No. No. Third question. In between the first and second coming of Christ, has the church always been the target for opposition? Yes. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, 18 through 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the words that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. What does Jesus tell us? You will be hated and you will be persecuted. Thank you, Jesus. That's what I needed to hear. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Why does the world hate us. What does Jesus say? The reason the world hates you is because you're not its own. Look very carefully what he says there. If you were of the world, the world would love you. If you act like the world, you smell like the world, and you do everything that looks like the world, you're part of the world. You're not offensive. They love you. They embrace you. The moment you step out of that and say, no, I've been chosen out of the world to live for Christ, you become a target of persecution and hatred. So here's the fourth question. In the midst of these judgments poured out on the unbelieving world, do we have any evidence from the text to suggest that Christians will not be on the earth during this time? Okay, that's where a lot of different interpretations come into play. So let me ask you a question. Can God spiritually protect, protect the church while in the midst of physical attack? Yes. What's the image that we've seen back in chapter 7? Those who are sealed on their foreheads, are protected. So, Pastor Sean's personal interpretation, you can take it or leave it. There may come a time in the near future where intense persecution happens, intense apostasy and falling away happens, and you turn around and baffled because half of your friends who claim to be Christians are now not, how do you respond? Do you back off 
and feel the bitterness of God's Word? Or do you feel the, the sweetness of God's Word? And do you trust that God will get you spiritually through it even though He may not take you out of it? So here's something we need to realize. God may not take you out of trials, but He will help you through those trials. See the difference? There's a difference between taking out and help through. We pray God takes us out. But if He doesn't, He will give us the strength to go through. Because what does Jesus say in John 16, 33? I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Stop right there. What does Jesus say? You may perhaps... Once in a while, experience a little bit of discomfort. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I'm going to take you out of it. Is that what he says? I have overcome the world. Jesus gives us the strength, the peace, the grace to endure whatever we will go through. And he says, a servant's not greater than his master. If it happened to me, it's going to happen to you. Take heart. I've overcome the world. So we have two choices. We can water down God's gospel to not offend the world, or we can boldly share the gospel, knowing that to some it's going to be the aroma of life, to some, the aroma of death. Paul says, who's sufficient for these things? This is kind of scary. I, I don't want to do it. But we're not going to peddle God's word. We're not going to water it down. Um, there's joy when somebody receives it. And there's kind of that pain when somebody rejects it. But that's part of life. You can't control the response. What are we supposed to do? Paul says we spread the aroma to everyone, everywhere. You share the gospel indiscriminately to everybody. You can't control the response but you joyfully share it and let, I hate to say, let the chips fall where they may. That sounds, let God sovereignly work out the results. We've got nine minutes for questions. Nancy, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I get that question a lot. And the question she asked, for those of you that are on Facebook Live, you share the gospel, you share the gospel, and they don't receive it. At what point do you kind of cut your losses and say, I'm not going to do that anymore? Okay. I don't know if the Bible ever gives you like seven times and after that, the eighth time. What Jesus does say is at some point you don't, put your, you don't throw your pearls before swine. Okay. Now, what he means by that is, there does come a point where you back off and you, it, it's a lost cause. Okay, so here's my personal philosophy on that. I would always err on the side of continuing to share, continuing to pray, continuing to be their friend, to continue, you, you be proactive in a kind, compassionate way until they definitively shut the door on you. If they definitively shut the door and say, get out of my face, I don't want to hear it ever again, that may be, you're, you, at that point, you stop verbally sharing with them. But well, you don't stop praying. What you could do at that point is like, okay, I can't continue to verbally share with them, but I'm going to pray 
And I'm going to pray two things. God, soften their heart, and God, send somebody else, because they may listen to somebody else and not me. So it could be that you're not the one that's going to be God's instrument to bring them to faith. Somebody else might be. Okay? So even if they slam the door in your face, never stop praying and never stop asking God to soften their heart and, and, and trust that God may send somebody else to be the one to share that. Now that takes some wisdom because sometimes you may like, maybe one more time. I would always err on the side of one more time until it's very, very clear that they're like, you've got to stop sharing this with me because I'm going to tear your head off and never be friends with you again type thing. Does that, does that make sense, Nancy? Yeah. Okay. Okay.